Miami-Dade's mayor takes on housing and climate challenges. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. All eyes are now on Miami-Dade to see how leadership handles two of the biggest issues facing the nation, housing and climate. Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava has thoughts on how to help homeowners and renters, and she also believes the county and surrounding communities are setting the standard on battling and preparing for climate change. Also, in the 1980s, one hotel became the central base for the cocaine industry. The Mutiny Hotel is the main character in Robin Farzad's book, Hotel Scarface, this month's title in the Sundial Book Club. You had pot smugglers, you had the perfect season Miami Dolphins and their coterie. There was a lot of hot money that emanated from that. We'll also get a preview of the upcoming hurricane season. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Housing and the environment, two of the biggest issues South Florida is facing. They affect everyone, whether you rent, your rent has gone up, you've been trying to buy a home, or if the last rainstorm yesterday flooded your yard or street. Both are also issues that Miami-Dade County officials are working to tackle. I recently spoke with County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava about some new initiatives that she's trying out, and we started with the housing affordability crisis. So, Mayor, you recently announced, uh, you know, with the housing issue, an affordability crisis. This has been going on for some time, but I wondered what finally got the county to jump on this. Why now? We've had a housing affordability gap for many years. However, coming out of the pandemic, the prices were rising precipitously with new people in the market, with dollars that they could afford to pay more, creating more competition and landlords eager to maximize their profits. So it is really a moment in time with salaries have inched up, but rents have skyrocketed. And it's hurting not only those families, it is hurting our entire workforce and our economy. When we say crisis, how do you define that? And have have you ever seen anything like this before? I don't think anyone has seen anything like this before. It's quite unprecedented. It's it's astonishing. We know it's a national problem. Locally, it is more of a problem. We are very constrained in where we can build and how we can build. And we are rushing to produce more units, create more supply uh, within the the places that we want to build, which is uh, not outside our urban development boundary. So it's, it's definitely a new phenomenon and one that requires our urgent attention. I wonder like how often you run into people and it could be residents, it could be homeowners, it could be landlords who, who approach you and say, mayor, you know, this is a big problem and it's, it's making my life really hard. I wonder how often that happens and what, what you say Mm -hmm. to them. Yes. So it's daily. I have multiple channels for communication. People are reaching out to me, Uh, through every possible mode, and I am very responsive. And we also have a very um, well-established constituent services arm in my office that I've beefed up. Uh, We want to be responsive to people. We've also just launched our Office of Housing Advocacy, and they are open. Their hotline is open. They're taking calls, helping people navigate. All our commissioners are getting calls. They're being swamped with people. 
losing their homes. Our homeless trust is at uh, max with calls and uh, our shelters full. Uh, and it's on the news every day. So <laughs> there is no avoiding that this is a crisis. Two things to look at here. You mentioned rent, and it's now Miami has surpassed New York as yes. you know, for median rent. I mean, New York and housing uh, and, and lack of, of inventory and housing costs just going through the roof. You announced recently uh, an executive directive called the Building Blocks Program. How's that program going to help? with rental assistance and, and, and the renters? Everything that we're doing to address this crisis on the housing side is part of the Building Blocks program. So not only do we now have the Office of Housing Advocacy, the uh, increase in federal dollars for emergency rental assistance, that goes not only for people facing eviction, but also people whose rents have gone up. So uh, those uh are, are important. We're helping landlords to re, uh, refurbish, renovate their homes and keep prices reasonable in the rental market. We uh, have these, these new laws, the uh, Tenants' Bill of Rights and 60-day notice for eviction, uh, rental increases, um, making sure that tenants know that they can make repairs if needed to vital uh, issues and then deduct from the rent. So we're strengthening protections. We're increasing the supply and the supply is being increased by new dollars as well as 14,000 units in process, affordable units. We are going to be announcing in the next several days a major initiative around new dollars for housing affordability and we're cutting red tape, reducing time for building new units. Let's take a look at something interesting. When you talk about the Tenants' Bill of Rights and, you know, again, making sure that landlords give their tenants enough time uh, before they jack up prices. But here's the thing. In Florida, they can jack up prices as almost as much as they want. And this is a hot market. Everybody's moving here. So demand is incredible. I mean, is there anything that the county can do to yes. keep those prices yes. from getting so high? Well, we are offering landlords these dollars, um, low interest loans to fix up in return for keeping rents affordable. And we're pushing that program out to more landlords. We're also appealing to landlords. They're part of the local economy and the workforce. And we're saying, please don't gouge. Please be part of the solution here. It's it's like the, the golden goose. You know, we need to uh, make sure that the economy keeps growing and it can't if our workers can't afford to to live here. And um, uh, there the the uh, rent control issue is a very complicated one in Florida. There is a law that uh, allows us to do a study to determine whether it would be justified. We're in the process of doing that because of legislation the commission brought. But even if that justifies moving forward, it would go to a public vote and if approved would only last for one year. So it's it's really not a solution in itself. We, we have to have more supply to bring down uh, demand. It, you know, well, you said that there's money for increasing the supply. So we got to we got to increase supply for rent. We got to increase inventory for housing. Is there yes. room for this? Well, great question. Uh, we are working on changing zoning 
increasing density inside the urban development boundary. So this is something that the commission has been looking at. Obviously, the demands are huge uh, for, for development. And there are ways, there is adequate space to build inside the urban development boundary for decades to come. And that report will be forthcoming and will be discussed at the county commission. You, you touched on this a moment ago. I just want to come back to it. The House, the Office of Housing Advocacy, uh, it, it, this new, uh, you know, uh, office. And I wondered, like, what is this going to add? And, and what are the goals? What kind of staffing will there be? We have three full-time staff members. We've got uh, a director. And then we have someone focused on housing development and someone focused on tenants' rights. The office will receive complaints. They have a hotline, 786 786- Four six nine forty five forty five, again seven eight six four six nine forty five forty five. That's eight to five, and after hours, our general services line three one one will will carry that information, basic information as well. They are going to be reaching out to landlords to make sure they know what tenants' rights exist, that they have an obligation to inform tenants of those rights, and that we want to work with them to be sure they do the right thing. Uh, Again, tenants are going to be able to self-help. If vital life safety issues are not addressed by a landlord, they can take care of it, uh, cover the bill, and deduct it from their rent. And that is a very important uh, new new feature. Uh, in addition, our office is going to be reaching out to landlords to ask them to participate in the emergency rental assistance program and the um, subsidy program, Section 8, helping to make sure that more landlords do step up to help us deal with this crisis. So uh, you, again, you look at South Florida, it is just a hot market. Everybody wants to move here. The state of Florida has no state income tax. And as you know, the state of Florida also very lax on anything COVID. And so a lot of people are attracted to the area. And it's just a great opportunity for investors and developers. They just, they see big money. They salivate at the opportunity. So you need them to cooperate. Um, Again, I just have to just push back a little bit here and, and just say, we have little inventory, not that much space, and so much opportunity how in the world do you can you look at any other big city and say maybe there's something that they're doing that we can copy because you do yeah. have to protect the the teachers health uh, healthcare workers police fire yeah. all these well, people who can't listen, afford that that the high rents and costs <laughs> yes we always look across the country we always incorporate best practices and we are as aggressive as any place in the nation on putting this housing into the market and uh, working with our landlords. We have landlords that uh, want to keep their rents reasonable. We have landlords that are looking for uh, ways to bring their costs down, and we're working with them on ways to do that. Uh, This is is a a group effort, a group responsibility. And some landlords are going to take advantage of the situation. And we understand that it is a free market. Uh, On the other hand, a lot of landlords are in it to really meet the needs of the community and the workforce. So uh, we're inviting them to the table. Uh, We have, as I say, an announcement coming out about new funding to help affordable housing workforce housing developers. We also are going to have a major 
community-wide summit the end of June, in which we'll all come to the table and seek solutions that work for everyone. I'm speaking with Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. We're talking about the local housing crisis, and we're also talking about climate change. Miami recently hosted the Aspen Ideas Climate Initiative, bringing leaders to the area to discuss climate tech and this thing called blue tech. You can find more information on these stories and others on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Let me switch to climate now. And I wonder, you you recently testified before Congress about climate. I did, also at the UN. What? First of all, what was the goal? What did you want to say? What was the message you wanted to, you know, share with world leaders, with our leaders in, in D.C.? What did you get across to them? We are doing so many things here in South Florida that we can be proud of and we want to share with the rest of the world because we truly are in this together. And we are very vulnerable here in South Florida. We've been at this for longer than most places. We already have our climate change strategy, our sea level rise strategy, an agreement across all of our cities, countywide, to uh, focus on resilience. So we have a lot to share. Uh, we also have a lot to learn. So I was with two particular groups at the United Nations, uh, small island developing states, or SIDS as they're called. Uh, the majority are right here in this hemisphere and look right to the Caribbean basin, which we're part of. Uh, so we talk together about what are the innovations, uh, what are the protections, uh, what are the ways that we're mitigate, mitigating and adapting and how we're interconnected economically with um, climate refugees coming to our shores. So this is very critical that we are sharing and learning together. And the other group is a global group of local government leaders. I think we've come to see that nations are sometimes slower to commit or act. And the real action is at the local level where mayors, for example, are responsible for the well-being of our residents and our businesses. So we have to uh, take those difficult steps of uh, changing our infrastructure to accommodate water, reducing our carbon output to contribute to uh, keeping the, the temperature at uh, livable levels. Uh, we are hard at work, and uh, together across the nation, we're learning with our sister cities and uh, local governments. I mean, we have, for example, Mayor Suarez, who wants to bring a lot of tech to this area. You you also want to bring tech, but you're looking at what's you know called blue tech and climate tech. Yes. You yes. want to attract these groups here. What exactly, you know, how are you selling the area to them, and what would they bring? So I get to talk to all kinds of tech innovators and investors. They want to know how can they contribute to making this place more resilient. Um, they, they're, they're on board. And then we want them to apply that innovation to helping us solve these problems. So we definitely already have a good contingent of climate tech, health tech, um, uh, environment tech of all kinds. And uh, we we want to be a, a go-to place because we are so aggressively addressing these issues and we're so eager to be in a learning lab. Mm -hmm. Let me finish with these last two things. Um, and mm -hmm. we're still on climate here. Um, we're coming up on hurricane season. 
and they're expecting another busy year. Uh, it's the five-year anniversary of Irma, uh, and we were lucky that wasn't as strong as it was when it hit us. But how confident are you that Miami is ready for a big storm? Because eventually we're going to have one. I am very satisfied that we have a great office of emergency management and we're bringing in a new director uh, who uh, we'll introduce to you shortly, uh, someone who is a real veteran, but also very, very open to new ideas and addressing an all hazards approach. So while hurricanes is our signature disaster, we also now have heat. We declared the first ever heat season started May 1. The other thing too is you have to Get people to think about it. You have to. We know hurricane season. We get it. We've lived here long enough. We know. But now you have to teach people this is another issue that you need to be yes. paying attention to. How are you approaching this this first ever heat season? Yes. Well, we're putting a lot into public education and outreach. So there's an ad campaign. Um, uh, there'll be print ads. Uh, really gearing it up. And we do have a lot of newcomers who are maybe not so familiar with hurricanes or extreme heat. So uh, definitely we, we need to, to get them on board. So uh, we have really an outstanding communications team in the county. We've won numerous awards. We, we do a very good job here in Miami-Dade County, and we are going to turn up the heat on our advertising for the hurricane and, and heat issues. June 1 is the official launch of hurricane season, uh, and uh, hold on to your seats. Well, it's another challenge that we face as we move forward, but that is, uh, as they always say, that is the price of living in paradise. It is. It is. And we can be safe. We just need to be aware and uh, take take precautions. Mayor, it is always a pleasure. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Lewis. It's a pleasure. Again, that was Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. And we want to hear your thoughts on housing and the environment. What can the county be doing differently? Or maybe there's a program that's really helping you. Stay in touch with us via our Sundial Text Club. That's 786-677-0767. Just type the word JOIN to 786-677-0767. Well, still to come, we chat more about hurricane season and how forecasting has gotten so much better over time. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Some hurricane experts have proclaimed the 2022 season will be another above-average season. NOAA is going to be announcing its initial outlook next week. Hurricane season starts June 1st. WLRN's environment reporter Jenny Stiletovich recently spoke with the National Hurricane Center director, Kenneth Graham. They talked during a break in the annual Governor's Hurricane Conference, which was in West Palm Beach. Graham was in the middle of the National Hurricane Center's preseason tour, making stops around the country. I wanted to ask you some questions about forecasting. You mentioned that it continues to improve. Um, and so tell us a little bit about some of the ways that it's improving and how that impacts the public in terms of how they prepare. 
Yeah, it's, in, it's incredible um, if you look back in time over the decades how we've made so many improvements to the track forecast. I mean, if you think about having 24 hours out, having an average error of around 30 miles is just staggering. I mean, that's just cut in half over the last you know several decades. It's just absolutely amazing. Um, what's interesting enough, in the last three years, we've actually cut the intensity forecast error in half as well. And that's part to getting more data into the models. You know, the aircraft data, we're getting satellite data all into the models. We're, you know, the forecast is getting so much better. And it makes a difference because, you know, we always talk about evacuations. What we don't talk about is not evacuating. And, you know, it used to be when you didn't have confidence in the forecast, everyone just went. There was a big evacuation. Now we can pinpoint that. We have, we have the, the tools to be able to pinpoint uh, those evacuations. And, and people lose their lives in the evacuation um, as well as not evacuating. So that's, that's a huge point because if we could prevent people from, from evacuating, we, we'd, we'd like to. And, and you mentioned an example, Dorian. And you, you go back to 1999 with uh, Hurricane, you know, look at Floyd, and it's a very similar path to Hurricane Dorian. But at the time, it was the, you know, Floyd was like the largest evacuation in U.S. history. Uh, two, oh, like 2.8 million people or so had to, to evacuate. But with the confidence now and being able to pinpoint that for Dorian, we prevented, um, you know, using science, having the science there to be able to prevent around 3 million people from, from evacuating. That's a big difference. You think about the cost, you think about saving lives, um, you know, with, with not being able to evacuate. So we, we look at that. We use the science to be able to, to really translate that into uh, better decision making. And, and as somebody who lived through Irma, <laughs> yeah. we know that evacuations are important and they're, and they're not just an inconvenience. Yeah. They are a huge logistical undertaking. It, it, it's huge. I mean, if, if there's an evacuation from your area, that means you're, you're in danger. And, and, and normally that evacuation is for that storm surge. And I think it's an important point to say, you know, if you're in one of those zones, the storm surge zones, know where you're going to go. And it may, it may not be 500 miles away. It, it may be a situation that, that you have friends or neighbors that are inland just enough to get out of that storm surge zone. So listen to those local officials. I mean, they, they really are taking our science and, and trying to translate that into information on, on decision-making like evacuating or not evacuating. Uh, listen to that. We're all in, in, in this together behind the scenes. We really are talking quite a bit. And, and another thing um, is information and how we get information. Some of us look at our phones, some of us watch TV, some of us listen to the radio. Um, and that is something that you all are working on to try and crack that code. Yeah, if you think about it, people get information in different ways. So we, at the Hurricane Center, we really try to be pretty aggressive when it comes to media interviews, whether it's television, radio, uh, social media, very active on, on social media, because you know, people get information different ways. And, uh, you know, you, you think about some of that's even, you know, you look at how well, I, I talked about it today. My mom gets information different than I do, and my kids get information different than I do. We all get different information. So we try to get that information, uh, important information, the forecast, safety information, critical um, data with the forecast in different ways, different places, different mechanisms, and that way we try to reach everybody because that's the goal. I, you had mentioned TikTok. I wondered how you use TikTok and if that's something that you're considering and, and maintain the level of seriousness yeah. that is required. And it's interesting because we don't use it yet, but we're contemplating how to make that happen because, you know, that's a, that's a medium that, you know, your message needs to be short, maybe 30 seconds or less, maybe 20 seconds. How do you get the critical information in such a short period of time? 
you have so many people using that to get information. So how do we how do we look at that? How do we do that? So we're having those discussions and we're involving social scientists. We have so many social science projects going on at the same time right now, nine projects. And we're looking at the cone, we're looking at communications, we're looking at our entire website. Is, it, is, is our website understandable? Is it not? We want to know. So we're really trying to involve social scientists into figuring out, make sure we're communicating the best that we can. And you mentioned that you've actually set up a social science lab in the in the Hurricane Center's library. So you said you you have social scientists eyeball to eyeball with meteorologists. Talk about that a yeah, little. We, we built a lab. It's, it's incredible because we've, we've you know there's been so much research that's got into operations, and that's what led to the improvements in the forecast. And and that's been at, at somewhat of a distance, and it's it's working somewhat. And, and I think it's exciting. Building this lab, we can have research scientists in the building during a hurricane. We can have social scientists in the building during a hurricane interacting with the operational scientists, the operational meteorologists. That's the one that issues your forecast. So if you can have the research folks, scientists, you can have the social scientists with the operational scientists eyeball to eyeball for the first time in 20 years. It's going to be priceless. They're going to understand each other. They're going to see common problems. They're going to be able to maybe tackle these problems from different angles. But having everyone in the building together, I, I think that's going to really help out. And so can you talk a little bit about a, what a social scientist does? Though That's a little bit of a vague term. So I think I have an idea. I think that maybe they interpret sort of the graphics and how best, but I don't know. So what do they do? So, so we, we meteorologists are very happy to design products. We're happy to design websites. We're happy to design um, graphics that, that are used. But most of the time, we design them for another meteorologist. So a, a social scientist comes in and says, OK, well, this is fine and dandy, but all the colors are wrong. People, it doesn't match this, and it doesn't really highlight some of the key areas that are most vulnerable. So they look at the colors of the map. They look at placement of numbers and, and, and a key to what the information means. They look at every word. They look at every single word on that graphic. They look at every single word that we might issue in a forecast and, and make sure it's understandable, make sure it's actionable, make sure it actually makes sense to somebody that may not be a meteorologist, which is most people that, that we're serving. Um, they help us communicate. They help us translate that science into to something that's understandable. And I have to say, this was sort of, for me, a big shift, because I remember when I started covering hurricanes, you were still using all caps. Yeah. That's part of it. I mean, you think about it. So, I mean, how many, how many, many, many years at the Weather Service were using all caps? And the feedback was always, stop screaming at me. So it was, that's sort of the social science that comes into play. And now, of course, we were allowed to use small letters and maybe even a comma here and there, which is very refreshing to be able to be, you know, good uh, in our, in our um, not just our pronunciations, but how we write is, is an important thing, too. Sometimes we tend to think if a storm is too far out to sea or if it's not a Cat 2, Cat 3, if it's just a tropical yeah. storm, we don't need to pay attention. But, but we, we do. Can you talk about that? Yeah, no, no such thing as just a Category 1 or just a tropical storm. There's no such thing as a, just a fish storm, which is the term that some people give a storm that's well out in the Atlantic. It's far away and it's not really going to impact us. But the reality is... You know, we've, we've had some big storms over the last, um, you know, four or five years. So we, we, we seem to be ramping up in our minds for these big Cat 4s, these big Cat 5s. But the reality is even a Category 1 could produce feet of rainfall, could produce an incredible amount of storm surge, a large 
slow-moving uh, category one could, could produce as much impact many times as a fast category three, category four. That's something to really think about. So it's not about that category. It truly is about those impacts and even a distant storm. So at the, the National Hurricane Center, we're responsible for forecasting across the, the entire Atlantic, which is a huge area. So we got to, it goes into the Pacific too. You know, you got to keep the ships safe. You got to keep mariners safe, so that's part of it. And even a storm 500, 800 miles away can produce swell that could produce rip currents on, on the East Coast. And and if you think about it, we've we've lost around 130 people in 2021 from rip currents, and, and many of those in distant storms. So let's talk about it. No such thing as a fish storm. No such thing as just a Cat One or or just a tropical storm. And one of the big changes that as a reporter it's helped me sort of explain things better that that I've seen you all do is the storm surge warnings. I mean, I feel like uh, not just talking about wind speeds, but actually talking about the flooding and the inundation. Um, just in terms of writing stories for me, I was like, wow, that yeah. that really helps a lot. Can you talk about some of the work you've done to try and improve the surge forecast and, and why you did it? You know, you, you look back at history and you start examining how people lose their lives in, in these tropical systems. And the data was clear. The, the number one cause was storm surge. Half the fatalities in these tropical systems came from the storm surge. Um, another 25% was the inland rain. It's a separate topic we got to keep talking about. So, so let's tackle it. So that's what happened. So beginning in 2017, it was a decade-long project, and you know, just really looking at how do we separate the storm surge from that Saffron-Simpson scale. Remember, the Saffron-Simpson scale is the wind. Category one, that's all based on wind. Category five, whatever it is, um, how do we separate that? And we did. So coming up with a separate storm surge watch and warning, coming up with inundation mapping to show how much water is there and, and probabilistic surge forecasts. I mean, just absolutely staggering that where we've come with the modeling. And we, we took a lot of the guesswork out of some of these products. If you see the number that we forecast for storm surge, that's water up your pant leg. You don't have to do any math about sea level. You don't have to think about um, any conversions of those numbers. It literally is water up your pant leg. Um, it's made a difference. Since so, so the leading cause of fatalities historically, but from 2017 to 2021, we've lost more people from carbon monoxide poisoning than we have storm surge. The leading cause of fatalities directly during that period of time, inland rain. We're making a dent. So, so I think the next thing is, is we're having so many conversations about let's, let's make the same dent. In, um, in the inland rain, what can we do, what, what kind of products, what kind of messaging, and tackling some of these uh, indirect fatalities as well, generators, health issues, heat, and really start to message those uh, really strongly. Well, thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to us this morning. Absolutely, anytime. Again, that was WLRN's Jenny Stiletovich talking with Kenneth Graham, director of the National Hurricane Center. You can learn more about preparation for the upcoming season. It's on our website, WLRN.org. And remember, the season starts June 1st. Well, still to come, one of Miami's most luxurious hotels today was once party central for the Cocaine Cowboys. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Drugs, disco, and debauchery. This month's Sundial Book Club pick takes us back to Miami in the 80s. Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami, tells the true story of that time through the lens of an iconic hotel. 
Earlier this month, we spoke with the author of the book, Robin Farzad. His family arrived in Miami during that wild time. They were in Iran fleeing the imminent revolution. He started by telling us about some of his earliest memories growing up in Miami then. You know, looking back, if you timestamp it, I always remember it at recess at playground time, there was this acrid smell of smoke in the air, and it was during our period of kind of 1980 trauma and the race riots and everything going on with the McDuffie riots. And concurrent with that, if you go back and look at it, the the Mariel refugee influx. And I think when I look back, it's kind of why I wanted to go back and reopen and revisit the early 80s Miami, why it was so important for me to do it as an adult. Because, I mean, I think about it, that was, you know, that was around the time. And I was living in Cluiston. So, you know, I th- I had arrived with my family close to about the same time you did, but we were living in Cluiston. But we always heard about Miami stories, like it was another world, right? And, you know, it, that's it was 81, Time Magazine comes out with its... Right. You know, Paradise Lost, and and there were all these stories about all this horrible stuff that was going on. So as a child, then you it, it just went over you. You didn't really experience it. No, uh, until about what? Let's say the mid '80s in Miami Vice every Friday night, where that was stylized for us in pastel colors in our living rooms. I just remember my parents would, for whatever reason, let me watch 2020 in Miami Vice on Friday nights, and I remember the opening sequence. <laughs> You know, everybody remembers that. And, I mean, how many different ways do you have to hydrogenate the experience through Hollywood, through New York, through Rockefeller Center and uh, NBC and everything to get uh, what they called like an MTVI's distillation of what was going on in Miami? I, like many other kids, was experiencing Miami uh, through... You know, Glenn Fry, Smuggler's Blues, and Miami Vice, and Phil Collins. Is it true that as a kid, you once thought you found a kilo of cocaine in a, what, I think like what, a canal or something? Oh, yeah. I, I idolized my cousin Holly growing up, and she lived in Keystone Point in North Miami on Biscayne Bay, and we loved going fishing. And I just remember once, we were fishing together in the mid-80s, like right peak Miami Vice moment, and we saw this white bag stuffed float up and i'm just thinking oh man i'm gonna win an award from my principal for fighting drugs like immediately i remembered the commercial if you see news in the making call 777 news it was the channel 7 news truck and i'm gonna be a hero and the mayor and ronald reagan and nancy reagan and my principal are gonna love me and i go quick quick call 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 777 news and she gave me the telescoping uh cnet and i held this thing up against the seawall And I just had these visions dancing in my head while it felt like my arm was going to come off. And then 20 minutes later, I look behind me and there's this camera crew. And uh, one of them says to the other, the kid says he found cocaine. And uh, he takes the the net from me and he brings it up. And I'm like, I really just feel the blood kind of rushing back from my head and everything. And he, he brings it out. It was a pillow from a cruise ship. And that was the world we were living in, you know, say no to drugs and, uh, but other people, adults, will tell you that they saw the bricks that called the cocaines, the keys, and um, square groupers floating up everywhere in Miami in the 1980s when you were playing cat and mouse with the Coast Guard. And, you know, if you were in Hollover Key, Hollover Inlet, all this stuff was getting dumped left and right. And people were finding this stuff. And how do you sell it and launder it and place it if you're unscrupulous, you know? You came back to this story 
about this this era of Miami, but through the lens of a specific place, this one hotel. And I know that there's a personal side to this story that I want to ask you later, but why this hotel? Without giving away a spoiler, uh, I had a job in high school selling frozen lemonade at street festivals, and they made me manager. And it was a great thing when you had senioritis, you know, at North Miami Beach High, and they stationed me at the Coconut Grove Bed Race in 1994. We do all sorts of things, the Metro Zoo, the Goombay Festival. And I just remember at the bed race, they stationed me at the corner of what's now South Bayshore Drive opposite Dinner Key Marina. And there's this abandoned hotel. It had effectively have become a crack house by the spring of 1994. Everything was in dereliction. You had turkey vultures in the pool. There was this amorphous kind of uh, pirate logo that was cracked in half that was falling off the front and you had this green tarp around it and it was long and short this property was a casualty of the savings and loan crisis it's a long forgotten financial misadventure the economy really collapsed in the late 80s and especially miami a lot of commercial properties uh, were owned by the bank and then by uncle sam which couldn't do anything with it and i was haunted it was strange there was a at this at this bed race there was an eddie money concert going on in Peacock Park. And at the same time that I was staring at this property behind me, he was singing, I want to go back and do it all over. And I can't go back, but I can't go back. I know. And really for, for the, one of the first times in my life, I was palpably haunted. And uh, maybe it's because I wanted to hang on to something. And I, I went to college up north a few months later. And anytime I got homesick, I just remember writing that address down and I had another thing in my wallet and I'd look it up and Lo and behold, it kept coming up in articles and police informant records and uh, busts. It seems like all of these stories emanated to and from this former you know, mutiny at Sailboat Bay property. And I would pick it up and put it down for uh, 15, 16, 17 years until I said, you know, do it, write a book. Um, and I learned kind of in my homesickness and going off and becoming a journalist, that this was the place that hosted the sexual revolution, the cocaine wars, the Cold War, the savings and loan crisis, CIA intrigue, Iran-Contra, all of those uh, all of those schemes and parties met and collaborated at this late great hotel, which really preceded the South Beach social scene. It was really the big thing going on in Miami in the late 70s was this hotel and disco next door to a, an internationally known recording studio. I think back to uh, the Cocaine Cowboys series, hmm. and you know, and, and I've, I know I've read this in other places where you know the, the cocaine trade was so big that it was it was a huge part of Miami's economy, and that you know a lot of the high rises we have were built because of cocaine. How true is that? You know, it's sad. You guys have done incredible coverage of uh, the, the the condo collapse in Surfside. There's a plausible chance that that was linked to kind of hot 1980-81 money that had to be laundered. I mean, isn't it a little bizarre that interest rates back then were close to 15% and it was hard to get a mortgage and you couldn't build sky rises fast enough? Um, there was a lot of hot money going into that skyline. There still is. If you see Cocaine Cowboys, the original by Billy and Alfred, they wrote the intro to this book. They have Edna Buchanan in, in front of the skyline talking about how the money has since sublimated several times over into the skyline that we can't recognize. But uh, let's take it back to this place. The founder, the late founder and owner of the mutiny, Burton Goldberg, he had a, kind of the dumb luck 
in the early 70s of, of opening, which was originally called the Sailboat Bay Apartments. And when he realized, you know, in the oil shock and everything that happened in the early 70s, you had rich Venezuelans coming to town. They called them the Damedos because they would want two of everything. Dame uno, dame dos, dame dos, dame dos, right? You had pot smugglers. You had the perfect season Miami Dolphins and their coterie. You had uh, uh, pornographers. I mean, the the one of the showrunners of Deep Throat, you know, and using the house nearby. All of these characters, marijuana, oil, everything, and there was a lot of hot money that emanated from that. So he converted this sleepy condo office building into a swingers hotel and a club. And it was just positioned to cater to the fantasies of cosmopolitan Pan-American men who had a ton of hot cash to blow. And that traversed marijuana, money laundering, all of the schemes of the 1970s, the mafia, which originally the Jewish and Italian mafia, which had the bookie wars came in, uh, the Venezuelans came in, the Cubans envied the Venezuelans, and then you saw three waves of Cuban gangsters dominate uh, control of this hotel. I'm speaking with our Sundial Book Club author for this month, Robin Farzad, about his book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. And you can read along with us. Let us know what you're taking away from this book club pick this month. Let us know on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Find the Sundial Book Club on Facebook. It started with marijuana before cocaine really took off, right? Yes, marijuana made many uh, Cuban-Americans wealthy. Uh, really through the misadventure with the Bay of Pigs invasion. The CIA had trained all of these exiles to know the coastline of Florida and the Caribbean and everything better than anyone in the world. You have thousands of miles of coastline and coves and how to smuggle and how to evade detection. And when they realized in the 60s that a rematch wasn't happening, they kind of sublimated their skill set into smuggling. And marijuana was hugely important. And then a lot of other people thinking that Jimmy Carter was going to legalize it and when people got their first taste of cocaine and it was far less smelly and you could get much more bang for the kilo, they moved to cocaine. And as as we know, all too well, it became an obsession for Miami by the late 70s. I didn't know that, you know, you, you had these uh, Cubans who had been trained that the, the CIA basically helped them, showed them how to become good smugglers. And that that really surprised me. Um, when did cocaine arrive on the scene? Uh, hand, you know, the Griselle de Blanco, the godmother, brought some with her. She was she was famous for, you know, Medellin is also known for its textile business, Colombia. She had these uh, bikinis and these bras and everything with smuggler compartments for you to bring in. Occasionally a banana boat would come in with cocaine, very small quantities. But once cocaine madness happened, I think it was a December 75 issue of Playboy magazine that everybody was circulating at the mutiny that this was a wonder drug. I mean... Dentists were taking it in lieu of cash. Uh, people could ha use it and not have hangovers. Thomas Edison used it. Sigmund Freud. If you go back and look at the Inca and Maya people, they could work for 48 hours straight. It used to be in Coca-Cola. And on top of that, it was a pre-revolutionary delicacy in Cuba that you would see in the upper class. They'd call it postre. You might walk in and see it on an ivory dish. You know, you're having coffee or something after a meal at a at a... At a, at a house or a mansion somewhere in the countryside. And so they brought that nostalgia with them to Miami. And it wasn't devious. It wasn't crack. It wasn't freebase. None of that had emerged yet. And so when they realized that if you have a hookup in the Andes and you could get the paste or the base for 
a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars, and by the time you cut a full kilo in Miami, it could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, everybody's going to jump on that. The other thing too is, you know, again, how things evolved from in the late seventies into the early eighties. And I think to myself, I know this neighborhood, I know this place. I've never been there, but I, you know, I've driven through there, and it seems so different. And I wonder what you think about, like, because Miami is so different, but. You, that you see that place and you're like, it was not the same as it is today. You know, do yourself a favor. Go on YouTube and look up Kepasa USA. And the beginning of that is uh, has a 1980 skyline of downtown Miami. There is one tiny tower, and it's just substantially a parking lot. I was in Miami. I worked there from 98 to 2000, and downtown was mostly gigantic parking lots and the old DuPont Plaza Hotel. The skyline is unrecognizable. And Coconut Grove, if you go back to the late 70s, I mean, South Beach was an old age home. It was, uh, there was no Art Deco revival going on. These were efficiencies where people, it was God's waiting room. You can, I'm sure you guys have uh, discussed, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, Andy Sweet, the Andy Sweet series on Netflix and the way he documented this kind of this aging culture of like God's waiting room and how depressing it was. And it only kind of reached you know, it became an international destination by the late 80s. I mean, right now, everybody thinks South Beach is synonymous with Miami. But there was a discotheque in the Omni, and there was the Mutiny in Coconut Grove, in this sleepy, kind of hippie area where much of modern-day Miami emerged. So everybody who was anybody went there. The Eagles, um, Led Zeppelin, Stevie Nicks, uh, Pablo Escobar. You know, if you wanted to see and be seen, you would get a suite and a membership at the Mutiny. And then, of course, all of the incredibly crazy parties and, as you described, orgies and everything else that happened in that place. Is it true they wanted to film Scarface there, but they couldn't do it? Yeah, I went back and looked at the screenplay. They accidentally referenced the Mutiny Club several times when it was fictionalized in the movie as the Babylon Club. So it was an intensely private club. The owner didn't want anyone coming in there and caricaturing Cuban-American gangsters. So... If you go and look at the history of Scarface, they actually filmed most of it in Southern California, and they saved the most violent part for Ocean Drive as kind of an FU to Miami. But yes, he wanted to film it at the Mutiny. He wanted to film parts at the Mutiny, and instead they had to recreate this scene. If you see them at the Babylon Club uh, in that booth with the mirrors around them, if you see the dancing mime, that was actually an employee of the Mutiny. Uh, that mime during uh, the, the scene, Strangers in the Night. Burton Goldberg, the owner, paid him to walk around and flirt with people and climb around the windows. And so they came there and tried to get as much as they could. They took the profile of, you know, the the um, the very thin cocaine blonde in Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, Elvira Hancock. That was a prototype taken straight from the mutiny. The way they described Latin males in the nightclub, uh, night partying capital of, of Pan America. It's verbatim the Mutiny Hotel. And so that's why we called it Hotel Scarface. And the funny thing is when I contacted people, as, as much as they hated that, and it was a joke when it came out in 1983, December of 83, when it became a cult classic, you see more and more kingpins coming out and, and pulling you aside. And they take me out to early bird dinner now on Coral Way. And like, you, you know, man, uh, Tony Montana was based on me. And I think it's it's funny that the worm has turned like that. <laughs> you had this beautiful explanation 
uh, in a TED Talk uh, about writing this book and why it was hard for you. And it, it goes back to your childhood in Miami. And I wondered if you could just briefly explain why writing this book gave you and perhaps helped you find closure. I needed to go back and reopen 1981 Miami. I was a five-year-old uh, bawling his eyes out every day, not knowing the language, not knowing if my dad would come back to pick me up, just remembering my mom crying all the time. I remember why was there a smell of acrid smoke in the air? Why is this something that even when I went off and was a highly functioning you know, magazine journalist and going to college and grad school up north, why is it that every night when I my eyes drifted shut, I would think back to 1981 Miami and the smell in the schoolyard and everything. There was this inexorable pull to go back and reopen early 80s Miami and to, I don't know if relitigate it, but to to revisit it. And I actually tell you that one of the more gratifying things is once you win the trust of sources in the book and they actually parenthetically share their traumas with you. That's really what it's all about as a writer. I didn't care if the book sold. I didn't care if it was optioned for anything. I was so grateful that people let me into their lives and opened up with me and shared the backstories and shared the trauma and the phone conversations with their mothers when they were in uh, detox and the horrific relationships and the AIDS scares and the serial killers and everything that was there. I, I you know, I, I could have been a trespasser into old traumas, but it was beautiful to me that I was able to share that with people and be discreet about it. I'm not a gotcha journalist. I'm not one of these National Enquirer people that wanted to get it and go and embarrass people. And certainly many people had a lot to lose by going on the record in this book. You know, some of their kids are in great colleges. They've gone off to do amazing professional things. They're Hollywood luminaries. A lot of us did things we regret, but, um, when we were at a point where we were really frank with each other about our traumas, I knew that this was this was the right track, and I, I had done this the right way. There could be a lot of pressure to depict this place as a whorehouse, as just the house of ill repute, and that's just not what it was. It was a cross-section of the various absurdities and excesses and traumas of, of Miami's coming of age. That was Robin Farzadi, is the author of this month's Sundial Book Club pick, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. He also created the NPR and Radio IQ podcast called Full Disclosure, which talks about finance and culture. Now you could read along with us, find more information on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Don't forget, you can join the Sundial Book Club. Just find us on Facebook, Sundial Book Club. Ask to join. It's free. And we'll be announcing later this month what we'll be reading for the summer. By the way, you're hearing, if you recognize anybody, trivia question right here. This song, Paul Engman, Push It to the Limit, from the movie Scarface. Yes, I know you knew that. Well, that's our program for this Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. No program tomorrow. It's Miami-Dade County School Board Meeting. We'll be back Thursday live with a talk about the controversy surrounding the founder of Coral Gables, George Merrick, plus another installment of Wildlife Thursday. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.